Hello, and welcome to Unhedged, a candid discussion of markets and mechanisms. I am your host, Frank Trois, a 25-year-plus veteran of the markets, both bull and bear. Joining me on the show are market participants ranging from hedge funds to fintech, and as diverse and eclectic a group as winemakers and priests. All of us, like you, asking the same question we all do when we turn on the TV nowadays. Why? Unhedged is a weekly podcast, and on occasion a bi-weekly podcast, based on the subject matter. You can subscribe to Unhedged through iTunes. As always, your feedback is appreciated, both good and bad. So let's get started. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to SohoCap.com slash Unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. All right, everyone, welcome back to Unhedged. As mentioned earlier, our guest today is Steve Monahan, noted fintech luminary, disruption and disintermediation expert, non-parallel. Steve, good to see you again. Thank you for being here. And I wanted to pick up on the conversation we, we had last time. And I, I wanted to, given, given your extraordinary knowledge of what's been happening here in the region, and I wanted to tie that in where... Why, at the end of the day, did Singapore feel the need to, to make this change? And, and why the heavy investment in fintech? Why did they become, you know, the leading regulator in the world on this? Why, why was this such a mission critical for the country? Well, good morning, Frank. I, I think um, that, that is a fantastic question. And, uh, and I think the answer comes in, in a very simple way, and that is that, what digitization does is improve quality, cost, and access. And if you look at what makes economies tick, it's really removing friction from that process. And that's the, the promise of fintech. And what you had in, in Singapore was, you know, fantastic infrastructure, uh, a great market, you know, all those sorts of things lining up. But the banking system still was quite fragmented and, you know, and still quite manual. If you, if you look at, uh, at, at that time, uh, you still had uh, banks that were highly traditional, you know, very uh, DBS was an old government bank and, and kind of behaved and, and looked that way. The consumer experience was was terrible, um, but it was as good as it got here. And Singapore is always very forward thinking. And, you know, it had made several leaps in its past. And this was the most natural leap forward. Uh, in, into fintech. It didn't happen that simply, though. Uh, I think that, you know, with everything, there's learning, venturing, and capital. And what Singapore does very well is once it decides that something makes sense, it really goes heavily into learning. And what you saw was the regulator going into a period of learning. And so moving from uh, prohibition, if you like, to observation, and I think that, that that's the first logical step where you start moving into that mode where you're open to learning. And then, you know, they've, they've well moved beyond that phase now and you've moved from observation to true collaboration. And I think that's a, a phenomenal thing that most markets should follow. 
Is it, is it fair to say, going back to your point on, on DBS and in full disclosure, both you and I have had working relationships and continue to have working relationships with the institution. But I, I remember uh, when, when I first arrived here, I forget if I have the acronym correctly, but someone said something like, you know, DBS stands for something like doing banking slow. Or something like that. Uh, the Australian is damn bloody slow. Uh, let's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I find it fascinating. Just the other day ahead of this interview, I, I was doing some research on DVS and I found one of the older articles. Um, I apologize. I don't remember if it was in The Economist or the FT. But we'll have it up on our website where Piyush was talking about when, when he came in and the moment that gave him hesitation was uh, not knowing what Tomasek the sovereign wealth fund was going to do. Tomasek obviously has an interest in, in DBS and getting that buy-in from them on the agenda without being a backseat driver uh, was crucial for him to come over and make the change. But can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think, I think our listeners would be really intrigued to hear, as you alluded to that, you know, just the enormous agency support that, that, that was there for, uh, for this effort. Yeah, I think it's probably important for people to understand that uh, DBS is also the, the world's safest bank and had been voted uh, so uh, a number of times now. And you've got to understand the political constraints around uh, banks here. So, you know, as a government bank, it was viewed as a national security issue if you had any any type of interference with the banking system. So you had some very tough constraints around digitization and the movement of that. And I think that, you know, it, what, what Singapore is, is it's, you know, often referred to as government-linked companies and, and all these sorts of things, but it's really a network of, of companies and interests. And so it's really important that you're kind of not out of sync with the rest of the community, if you like to think of it that way. You know, uh, Singapore is also very protective of its heartlanders, um, you know, the people that have the, the poorest access to services and banking and et cetera. So it was very important that digitization did not ignore them as well. So you have this very much these balanced interests across Singapore that it's important to, you know, you can't go rogue on. You, you have to really make sure you respect the boundaries of, of the company and, uh, and its involvement with the economy. Uh, and I think that in many other countries, you don't have those similar constraints. You're, you're, you can be a little more wild. If you have a look at China, China's one of those markets mm. where you break out and go and, and do something without consideration for necessarily its legality or, it, or its confluence with the national agenda. Well, you know, your point on China is fascinating because when, when, it, when you look at what and how they're dealing with data. It, it is just such a fascinating juxtaposition relative to the, the uproar that's being caused in, in both the States and in Europe uh, regarding these privacy issues. And how does, how does Singapore reconcile itself? Because on the one hand, I think, you know, one of the reasons why nations do business in Singapore is, is because of, in some respects, how they've pulled out all of the best components of, of the Western societies but, but at the same time, to your point, there is a process behind what they do. They, they are a very pragmatic nation in terms of how they implement these things. How do you think they're reconciling that relative to, you know, terrific technology, uh, uh, you know, that, that's there and available, and then just north of them, this, this behemoth that, that's saying, yes, you know, we're actually going to take the technology, you know, a step further and, and 
in effect, almost begin the first steps of a dystopian society in terms of how we're using this data. I mean, is how does Singapore think about that? And, and where do you see them shaking out in, in terms of data and privacy? That's a, that's a really interesting question, actually, because I think if you look at the origins of Singapore, it was it was very much more oriented to being a highly controlled society. Um, there's a famous conversation that I'm not sure uh, was that public uh, between a CEO that came in uh, from a bank uh, and said he didn't have time to meet with Lee Kuan Yew uh, and then was advised that he, he did have time by Lee Kuan Yew. And, uh, and uh, Lee Kuan Yew articulated that uh, his country was destroying uh, their system through the Internet and access to information. Um, which was a, 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 a private conversation. But what I think that really triggered is Singapore is adaptable. If you, if you look at that, you know, they'd had a very tightly controlled media space, uh, and to some degree they, they still do, as, as you're aware. But what they, what they have done is, is created a way of, of really innovating and, and really starting to open up uh, those channels of communication and, and education of, of the public, et cetera. Um, China is not. China's sealing it off. And in history, that hasn't ended well. I mean, if you look historically for, for China, when they sent the fleets out uh, in the uh, 17th century, uh, they discovered pretty much, oh, sorry, in the 14th century, they discovered pretty much most of the world, burnt the ships, shut themselves down, and then went from the most advanced civilization on Earth to, to one of the uh, very backward civilizations. So, you know, whether whether history turns out differently this time will be interesting to see. But Singapore hasn't gone that path. It, it's more aligned itself with, with an open society, uh, free information flow. Um, and I think that that's really shown up in, in, in catalyzing that next generation of engagement, entrepreneurship, um, and building Singapore as that regional hub. Do you think, though, Steve, if, if, if we extend the argument further, where does that I, I want to cross the Rubicon here and maybe talk a little bit, at least in theory, regarding the blockchain and, and maybe some of the noise regarding the cryptocurrencies. They're, they're, on the one hand, you can see the benefit of removing the physical form of currency, i.e. a fiat currency, uh, and, and digitizing it. And, and again, going back to China, how they're subtly beginning to do this, and, and they're also closing the system down based on your scores. So, you know, there's a, you know, as you, you know, better than I, the ability for them to socially score you as well as financially score you uh, based on your behavior. Where, where does, where does that go? Cause I know, I know on Singapore's end, the central bank has done a, a lot of research on this. And part of me feels that on the one hand, you know, the, the, the idea of a digital currency uh, has great benefit. And then on the other, when I look at, you know, in, in the old days, the ability for a central bank to just ratchet up the printing presses, create inflation, um, they lose that as a policy tool uh, to do that. So how far down the road does, does Singapore go in this? And, and you know, is, is there a Rubicon that you feel that when they cross it? Is it, is it, is it the cryptocurrencies? Is it a privacy issue? When, when do they cross the Rubicon and it's over? Is there a tipping point in all this? I think there is a tipping point, and I think it's an inevitable conclusion. Uh, if you look at cash and the cash economy, I mean, there, you know, Singapore, like every country, has tried to put increasing controls around the use of cash and its taxation, et cetera. But I think the net benefit, if you're looking at how you can uh, apply 
technology and fuse that with currency is really interesting. You know, the ability, you know, I actually tried to lodge a patent many years ago uh, around centralized digital currency uh, long before that was a concept, before long before blockchain. Mm. And uh, and if you, you look at that, your ability now to task, you know, you had enormous amounts of money pouring into, into banks in the U.S. to lend to SMEs, and then soon they discovered that it didn't go anywhere. You know, if you could tag money for purpose, you can now start tracking it through M1, M2, M3. So I think that there's an enormous value that can be created uh, in being able to put better controls around currency with modern tool sets. The flip side of that is what you're seeing in China, where it can be used for, you know, uh, as much for evil as it can be used for good. You know, the concept of can uh, my thoughts about politics affect my credit score? Right. Uh, you know, that that's that's a, a line that I very much doubt Singapore would, would cross. Um, in fact, I'm sure they wouldn't. But um, it, it's something that uh, that's certainly occurring uh, up north. What, what do you see as a, the, the likelihood of uh, Eric Schmidt at Google alluded to this at a, at a conference a few months ago where, where he talked about at the end of the day, there'll be three, three versions of the web. You'll have a Chinese version, you'll have a U.S. version, and you'll have a European version. And what I thought was interesting was half, half the people were like, wow, that's a phenomenally revolutionary concept. And then the other half of the room was like, hey, we're effectively two out of three right now. China effectively does have their own version uh, of the web that they control. Are, are we now moving to that place where, where the gates will drop and, and there will be multiple versions out there versus one open system? Yeah, I, it's an inevitable conclusion, and I think we're already there. If you look at GDPR, it's already starting to sift through the content that can enter into the into the EU anyhow. So, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad thing. You could argue that a completely open internet with no security has led to hacking of massive scale. You know, so as we start to look and control this, the question is: Is it controlled in some sort of equal manner? And today it's not. It's kind of open for China to go abroad, but not vice versa. So, you know, right now you've you've actually defined, you know, created an inherent competitive advantage and an asymmetry um, by keeping it open in one direction and closed on, a, on another. Um, so and I think that that's something that we'll need to reconcile as we think about the model of that going forward. And Steve, let me ask you one last question before we take a break. The the. What do you think, because you alluded to in, in your point earlier about the Chinese Navy, which is a great historical example where there was a point in time where they were uh, not imperialist, but expansionary in terms of trying to see and understand the world. And to your point, they, they just came back and said, we're not going to do this anymore. How real of a threat is this really that, and, and I'll just wear my U.S. hat for a second, how expansionist how militaristic are these initiatives versus are they just nothing more than China just simply saying, hey, we're going to reclaim what was always ours. And, and, and outside of that, we're, we're done. You know, give us the South China Sea, we're done. Give us Taiwan, we're done. Um, should the U.S. feel threatened by this or is this an easy give for the, for the U.S. to give to China right now? You know, I, I think these actions are all about security, oil and gas uh, in the same way that um, – you had uh, the U.S. You know, react very badly to Cuba when they put missiles on the, on the doorstep to the U.S. I think China and having U.S. warships plowing up and down the South China Sea uh, leads them towards um, 
you know, an action that, that protects their security and interests. So with that, I, I, I personally don't see a, a great issue. Where I do take some umbrage is that if you have a look at the historical linkages of China to many of those areas, they're, they're not concrete at all. Mm. Uh, could you imagine trying to redefine most of the borders in Europe based on a particular point in time yeah. um, as to who, who controlled what? Um, it's a kind of a ludicrous argument if you're looking for stability, peaceful you know, trade, you know, all those sorts of things. And, you know, in, in the West, we've pandered to that, not, you know, that uh, verbiage from China. You know, there's very little historical linkage uh, between uh, a certain country just off the coast of China, uh, which is a full democracy, um, you know, whose natives are actually Polynesian. Mm. So, you know, that verbiage, uh, you know, we've, we've put up with it for, for a long time, I think, in the West. And I don't think that it's, it's particularly helpful, you know, in trying to negotiate. Good deal. Well, on that note, Steve, let's take a break. We'll give our sponsors a chance to say hello to everyone. And uh, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. And for our listeners, more to come. Stay tuned and we will be right back. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com slash unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in, and we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care.